Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Thank you for being here for another Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, and I'm very glad to have you with us. You know, it's kind of astonishing to me. I was looking at the calendar this morning, and I realized that today uh, we're ending the 12th week, 12 weeks of doing Political Rewind by remote. I've been saying a long, a long time now that I do it out of my house just outside of the city of Decatur, and then all of our panelists are joining us by phone from across the state, and uh, it's worked out pretty well, I think most people uh, would would say, uh, to do it this way. Um, we're going to talk about the election today because, of course, we have primary uh, elections coming up on Tuesday, uh, but we also cannot uh, start the show without talking about the latest in what has been happening in terms of the uh, protests in the streets in cities in uh, Georgia and the efforts that seem to be accelerating to finally address uh, racism and the systemic problems that it has created. Uh, We have a long way to go before all that is accomplished, uh, but there seems to be movement in the right direction. But before we get to that and before I introduce the panel, let me just remind everybody today is the last day of early voting. Uh, After this, you've got to vote at the polling place on the uh, 9th or... Uh, get your, uh, if you've got an absentee ballot, some of you continue to write me to say you haven't gotten your absentee ballots, which means that you're going to have to go in on Tuesday uh, and uh, invalidate your early, your request for an absentee ballot and then uh, vote at your polling place. Uh, The, uh, many of you who did early vote this week have also been writing me to say that you thought the procedure was pretty smooth. You felt fairly safe. You felt like there was virus protection in your polling places, but some of you said you waited for as long as 90 minutes or more. So uh, maybe if you can early vote today, it'll be easier than what could happen on Tuesday. All right, uh, let's get right to our show today. We've got a terrific panel uh, to talk about what's happening right now across the state and across the country, as well as look at the election upcoming. Uh, Of course, it's Friday. I'm joined by my colleague Jim Galloway, the lead political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Jim, uh, we see your column on Wednesdays and Sundays, and you oversee the Political Insider blog at AJC.com. How are you holding up, Jim? Oh, I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. Just getting ready for the next Tuesday and the next Monday following that. Tuesday's the primary. Monday on Mon- on the next Monday, uh, the legislature comes back to town. Yeah, they start coming in, what, June 15th. And we're going to talk a little bit in a moment about uh, one of the big measures that's expected to be a uh, part of their agenda. Uh, Dr. Andra Gillespie is with us. She, of course, is a political <laughs> science professor at Emory University, and uh, her colleague, uh, uh, Dr. Alan Abramowitz, is with us as well. Um, Andre, the last time you were on, I asked you if uh, Emory has made any decisions about fall classes. The answer was not yet. Are you getting any closer? Uh, I mean, I guess we are getting closer, but it's still not yet. <laughs> you don't know at this point. Alan, you've gotten no word either on whether what kind of classes you're going to be teaching in the fall, remotely or on campus. Uh, I think they've told us they're going to make a decision on June 15th. I believe that's the, the target okay. date, at least at least for now. Okay. Uh, Dr. Audrey Haynes is also with us. She's a professor of political science at the University of Georgia. Audrey, the state universities, uh, the effort is going to be made to actually have classes on campus in the fall, right? We are. Actually, it's been astonishing. We've been um, getting emails um, and information about the planning, a lot of a lot of um, changes will be introduced, too. And we got an email yesterday saying that there would be two masks provided to every single faculty, staff, and student. And I'm assuming the expectation will be that those will be worn when we have our face-to-face classes and we're doing a lot of class flipping and and moving um, students to uh, larger environments. I've been amazed at the uh, collective effort 
um, from the top down uh, to make sure that we do this the right way. Yeah, I, I, I think every school uh, in Georgia is going to be really struggling to make sure they can try to do this right. Uh, Jim Galloway, uh, let's start with a column that you just uh, posted at AJC.com. Uh, and I want to set it in context, if I may, just briefly. Um, yesterday in Glynn County at the Ahmad Arbery, the first hearing for the three defendants accused in uh, his shooting, we learned from a GBI agent that uh, Travis McMichael, uh, after shooting Arbery three times, yelled at him, spewed at him a, a profanity, a racist profanity that uh, is just horrifying. And, and, and I thought about what it must, I wondered, were these the last words that Ahmad Arbery heard uh, before he died? Uh, and, and the thought of that as haunting and, and horrible. Uh, that said, at the same time, Jim, the state legislature is trying to figure out, uh, the Senate is, whether or not we're finally going to get a hate crimes bill in Georgia. The House passed it in the 2019 session, sent it to the Senate. The Senate hasn't even taken it up for a first hearing. And you're reporting this morning that its future this session Maybe in doubt. Right. I was. Uh, uh, if if you if you look at some of the previous statements, say by Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, uh, I talked Thursday to State Senator Brian Strickland of McDonough. Uh, you know, they were they they were they were trying to assure me that they, that, that, that everyone that they, that they they favor a hate crimes bill. They think a hate crimes bill is needed, but they question whether it can be done uh, in the eleven days left to the legislature. Uh, 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 Chuck Efstration, he's the Republican uh, in the House, who's the author of the bill, uh, says that that this search for perfection is is nothing but a stalling ta- tactic that they're out to kill the bill. And what you've seen is, I mean, uh, David Ralston uh, out of the box after that uh, the, the the leaked video of of the the Aub- Aubrey uh, slang. Uh, uh, hit. Uh, he called for passage of the bill. Metro and uh, Metro Chamber of Commerce, uh, the Georgia Chamber of Commerce, have done the same thing. You had the 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 president of the 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 the, the CEO of Coca Cola North America send a letter to the principals at the state capitol calling for this. That's that's unusual. You do not uh, f- calling for a, uh, f- the passage of four twenty six. You don't you don't see that very often. So there's a great deal of pressure on the Senate. And I, I've got to say, by the by the by the end of the day, by the time I I, I was nearly finished with the column, I, I talked with uh, Jeff Duncan's uh, chief of staff, John Porter. Who kind of uh, added the 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 element that was missing from uh, Jeff Duncan's previous statements? And he says there will be a hate crimes bill passed before the legislature leaves uh, in in June. Now the, now he uh, Duncan presides over the Senate. Uh, he doesn't absolutely he doesn't have absolute control over it. So we'll see what happens. So um, Bill, you know when I think about this bill and I think about what the people are out in the streets for. Um, I think there are some people who think that this is all about being outraged at one man's death, and it's never been about that. Um, it has been about addressing larger systemic issues, and those systemic issues have local manifestations. So there is the larger issue that every community has to deal with with respect uh, to uh, police brutality and over-policing in African-American communities. Um, but then there are um, other structural issues. And so because these two deaths happened um, and were being discussed at the same time, the Georgia manifestation of this is to deal with something that, um, you know, most other states have dealt with already, which is to pass hate crimes. And so I think if legislators don't pass this bill, I think some people think that now that, you know, uh, George Floyd is being funeralized, um, now that all of the officers involved in that case have been arrested, uh, that, like, the protests are going to die down. They're not going to die down in this state. Um, and Jim said this, said as much in his column, right? People are actually going to push for concrete things, and they're going to be diffused and community-specific. And for this state, passing a hate crimes bill now is going to be what's going to animate people. And so you either pass it now or you pass it later and expect that there are going to be people who are going to continue to protest and push until this happens. 
Uh, Alan, uh, before the show went on the air, we were all talking a little bit about this measure, and you right. uh, <clears throat> uh, pointed out something that we've all watched unfold for quite a few years around a hate crimes bill, and that is that it is stalled in the past uh, because the legislators who have introduced uh, like, uh, the language of the bill have wanted to include protections for LGBT individuals, and there's never been any appetite for that in the uh legislature uh, controlled by Republicans. Right. I, I think that that may very well be the big sticking point for uh, many of the Republicans in the state Senate. Um, the inclusion of uh, LGBT people, um, you know, in this particular legislation, which is the case, I think, in most of the hate crime bills around the nation. Um, but but that uh, is something that uh, is uh, a problem for some conservative evangelicals. And, you know, that's a group that is uh, very influential with Republicans. Audrey? What I was going to say is that this is an opportunity for uh, the leadership in the Senate, particularly Jeff Duncan and his staff, uh, and the governor as well, to exert a little bit of their political capital to do something that really will be viewed across the state as generally a win. It may not be exactly difficult um, in some areas, and maybe some of the things Alan says are you know, roadblocks, but those can be overcome. I think the political cost, if they don't do something like this, is actually going to be worse for them. Actually, you know, Audrey, you're right because I've been I've talked to House Republicans who who think that if they do not pass this hate crimes bill, they are they they stand in danger of losing control of the House. There's a there's a 16 seat gap there, and you've got a lot of suburban seats at risk. Same thing in the same thing in the Senate. The good thing about the timing of 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 the legislature coming back is that, of course, it's after the June 9 primary. When most House members will, will won't won't have the you know the intra-party fights that that Republicans pay closest attention to will be over, so I I think that 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 does ease a little bit of the of the angst over over taking it up. Yeah, you're pointing out that that perhaps the most conservative members of the legislature on the Republican side. Uh, if they're facing primaries, had this come up before the primaries, could have been outflanked to the right and maybe would feel they were in danger of losing their seats if they voted for this, which I think is an interesting. So it's interesting that, in fact, the legislature, legislature doesn't convene till after the primary. But, Andre, I want to go to you again. Uh, you made an important point. Uh, you point out what we've talked about on this show for the past week or so, which is um, – that what's been happening in the streets in the aftermath of Ahmaud Arbery, of uh, 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 George Floyd in Minneapolis, Breonna Taylor in Louisville, uh, we're starting to see that this is about systemic, long-time problems in terms of race in this country. I mean, we're not just starting to see it, but it's becoming more and more apparent. We saw it in the coronavirus as we see the disproportionate number of African-Americans who are struggling with coronavirus. So that's what the work that has to be done, I think. The, in many ways, the hate crimes bill, it, it's important because no we're one of four states that doesn't have it, but it, it would be a mistake, I think you would say, to sort of breathe easily if it passes because, well, we've taken care of that problem. Yes? Well, I just think it's low-hanging fruit, and it's the most obvious thing to address in this particular state. But there's still the larger discussion to be had about policing. Um, and so you're still going to see that issue come up in cities and counties around the state um, over the course of the next couple of years. And also, sad to say, so while I am optimistic by the things that I have seen happen in the last week, I also see places where there's still huge gaps. 
And I don't think everybody is on the same page about systemic racism. And we heard it from the White House this week with their complete disavowal of the existence of systemic racism. Um, I see undertones of that in the discussion about lynching, um, you know, in the Senate this week. So I think that there's still some people who recognize, who can all agree that what happened to Ahmaud Arbery and what happened to George Floyd and Breonna Taylor was horrible and that it shouldn't happen, but they don't see it from the perspective of the protesters who have seen most of their adolescent lives. Somebody dies, somebody dies, somebody dies, somebody dies, and most of the people who did it not actually be punished for it. And they're saying, look, this is actually a pattern that needs to be addressed, and it's the pattern, it's not the individual case. So I still think there's a lot of work to be done there. Okay. So uh, I was just going to uh, uh, weigh in on what I've been seeing in the public opinion polling on this. Uh, and th there have been a number of national polls that have been released in the last uh, week or so uh, measuring public reactions to the protests um, and, and as well to the broader issue of uh, police brutality. And what's striking in those polls is that th there's been a significant shift in public opinion um, compared with what we've seen in the past, where there is growing recognition that this is a, a systemic problem, that uh, African-Americans are treated differently, um, are much more likely to be victimized, and uh, even among white Americans. So that, that is a big change, and I think that that's part of the context in which these discussions are taking place. And I suspect that that's true in Georgia. I haven't seen polling in Georgia specifically, but you know I'm pretty sure that that would be the case in Georgia as well. So that is another factor, I think, that is um, uh, gonna, going to influence the decisions that are going to be made when the legislate, legislators come back. So um, let's, uh, Andre mentioned the uh, anti-lynching legislation in the, uh, in the Congress right now. Uh, it's, you know, it's really interesting to look at the history of anti-lynching legislation. It was first introduced uh, in, uh, in the U.S. House in 1918. A, a, a Republican representative from Missouri, Leonidas Dyer, uh, sponsored an anti-lynching bill that would have made lynching a federal crime. Almost a hundred years late, for a hundred years, that bill languished. And finally, uh, a couple years back, both the House and the Senate passed different versions of bills that would, in fact, make lynching a once and for all a federal crime. Uh, but those bills had different language. They needed to be reconciled. And yesterday, uh, the Senate had an opportunity to approve the final language of the bill, and it turned into an incredibly emotional session on the floor as uh, Senator Rand Paul, Republican from Kentucky, uh, blocked passage saying that he thinks that the bill doesn't, uh, would allow for, would be applied to crimes uh, lesser than just lynching, and therefore needs to be improved. Uh, Senator Kamala Harris uh, was, and, and Cory Booker, who were sponsors of the legislation, had emotional exchanges with him. Let's just listen to a little bit of Kamala Harris and Rand Paul. We must remember the murders of Emmett Till, Raymond Gunn, Sam Hose, and the thousands of others whose lives were destroyed by the barbarity of the lynch mob. But this bill will not do that. This bill would expand the meaning of lynching to include any bodily injury, including a cut, an abrasion, or a bruise. To suggest that anything short of pulverizing someone so much that the casket would otherwise be closed except for the heroism and courage of Emmett Till's mother, to suggest that lynching would only be a lynching if someone's heart was pulled out and produced and displayed to someone else is ridiculous. On this day, a day that should be a day of national mourning. So, Jim, of course, Kamala Harris is referring 
to uh, Emmett Till. The bill in the House was called uh, the Emmett Till anti-lynching bill. And, and of course, we know that Emmett Till's body was so badly battered that uh, his mother was advised that she should have a closed coffin, but she said no. She brought him back to Chicago and wanted an open casket so that people could see exactly what had happened to her son. But the fact that this bill is being held up and that this debate took place on the floor, Jim, yesterday on the same day that the uh, first service, uh, funeral service for George Floyd was taking place in Minneapolis is striking contrast. Yeah, and it doesn't look like it's going to pass. It's it's uh, it's I, I I don't anticipate it that it will, and and you don't see uh, persons like uh, Mitch McConnell insisting that it pass. Uh, so I think that's 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 quite quite important, uh, Bill. I just want to add, add to something that that, that that Andra had said about about the hate crimes bill being low, low hanging fruit uh, in in Georgia, and and she's right about that. Uh, and David Ralston, when he says he wants this bill passed quickly and without any amendments, it's kind of a signal to Democrats, too, because there are some issues that Democrats would love to address and attach to this bill. And one of them is, 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 is changing the state stand your ground law. Uh, which is, of course, you know that that was the, that was uh, used. Uh, a similar uh, statute was used extensively in in defending the the, the killer of Trayvon Martin, and uh, and uh, and 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 uh, there are uh, the, the citizens arrest law, uh, which which allegedly uh, the McMichaels used are are using in their defense uh, uh, for uh, they've been charged with Aubrey's killing. You know, All right, I, so we should point out that. Go ahead, Andra. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I completely agree with this, and and I, um, you know, will note sort of appending to what Alan earlier said that you know, in the wake of Ferguson, we also saw this increase in the number of people who were cognizant of uh, the ways that blacks are mistreated by the police. And yes, that is actually evidence of systemic racism. But what I'm talking about is actually a little bit deeper. I think most people get using racial slurs is wrong, killing somebody because of their race. I think police violence that's disproportionate against African-Americans is wrong. If you detected, if I, if I brought up sort of, you know, environmental disparities, if I brought up uh, certain types of, uh, you know, other types of manifestations of inequality, I'm not quite sure that people recognize this. I have survey data that's a little bit dated at this point that I'd love to get back out in the field again that would suggest that it's actually much harder to suggest uh, to discern the more subtle forms of racism, and we do actually see differences. And then that's the kind of stuff that ends up being weaponized in debates like this where people are actually splitting hairs over stupid stuff, um, as Kamala Harris might say, um, as opposed to actually getting to the heart of the problem. So, Andre, let me follow up on, on that, if I, I might. And, and I, I know we're keep continuing to go down a, a road. We want to get over to elections at some point. But mm-hmm. let, me, let me ask you this question. Uh, as I said a f- few minutes ago, uh, the spread of the coronavirus, which has shown us the racial disparities in terms of who's getting uh, COVID and who isn't, has highlighted that Af- African Americans are getting at a much faster and bigger rate. And, and we know that some of that has to do with inequitable health care. It has to do with uh, uh, the jobs that African Americans fill that have put them out in the streets at a time when they uh, can't shelter in place. It has to do with any number of socioeconomic conditions. Is it more likely that if we focus on how the virus has impacted the African-American community rather than, say, police violence, that people may start opening their eyes? We actually don't know the answer to that question, and it's funny that you ask that now. I mean, I think that that's a testable question. For the last couple of weeks, this is kind of grant writing season um, for a lot of academics. So uh, I and a number of colleagues in different places have spent the last couple of weeks writing rapid grants so that we could get the money to actually test these questions. So we won't know for a little bit till we get money whether or not that's true. I think it's a you know I think it's a I think it's an open question, and we're all very curious to find the answer to that question. Um, Audrey, you want to jump in? Yes. To follow up on sort of what we were talking about with those bills, too, the one thing that we should say um, that is uh, perhaps indicative of some sea change is that both of the bills written in the House and the Senate regarding um, the anti-lynching laws were bipartisan. And Mitch McConnell still has an opportunity, if he so chooses, to uh, take procedural steps to sort of force a vote, which would sort of uh, 
you know, end the, the activity that Rand Paul has generated. And he, he has the right to raise those questions if he so chooses in the Senate. It's drawing attention to him, perhaps, that he might not actually want. Um, but I think we'll see. And that, that is a positive thing, that there is some reaction, even though it's been such a long time coming. And I also think because Republicans have taken on criminal justice reform and tried to co-opt that as something of their own, um, in fact, Doug Collins was talking about this the other day uh, in reference to some something that Kelly Leffler had put out where he was saying, you, you can't call Trump a racist, you know, or because he's the one who is promoting criminal justice reform. So I think there's a lot of struggle in the Republican Party trying to grapple with what's going on and come out somewhere on the other side where they they look like they're in better shape for November. And I think it's very difficult for them, especially with the leadership at the top. Um, thank you for that. I've got to get to a break in a minute. Before I do, Alan, uh, President Carter issued a statement the other day about uh, police violence against African-Americans, <clears throat> excuse me, about the protests in the street. One of the things, Alan, he did was to remind people that when he gave his inaugural speech and he became governor in 1971, uh, he declared the end. He said, now is the time to end racial discrimination. Front page of the New York Times the next morning uh, heralded that as the beginning of the New South, uh, that, a, that a Southern white governor would make that kind of statement. And then, uh, so Carter said he's saddened by the fact that these, these many years later, uh, we're still fighting that battle. And he said, since leaving the White House in 1981, Rosalind and I have strived to advance human rights in countries around the world. We have seen that silence can be as deadly as violence. A people of power, privilege, and moral conscience must stand up and say more, no more to a racially discriminatory police and justice system, immoral economic disparities between whites and blacks, and government action that undermine our unified government. We're responsible for creating a world of peace and equality for ourselves and future generations. It's a powerful statement, Alan. The question is, have we reached a genuine inflection point? We don't know. Oh, th that's a subjective question, but I'd love to know right. what you think. Well, I think it's interesting that it's not just President Carter that has um, made, made a statement along those lines. Uh, every ex-president has, in the, in the last uh, a week or so, has come out with very strong statements um, about this issue, and uh, and they're giving their support to efforts to address um, the concerns with systemic racism and and with police brutality in particular. And that and that, and that includes President George W. Bush, who uh, who put out I thought a very strong statement on this, along with President Carter, along with President Obama, along with President Clinton. Uh, and so every case, I mean, these the statements, what we've heard from these ex-presidents uh, uh, contrasted markedly with the sort of rhetoric that we've heard from the White House. And, and, and uh, Bill, you have to wonder whether that was whether it's kind of purposeful and organized, because, of course, it was it was uh, George W. on Monday, <clears throat> Obama on Monday, and then Obama had a, a town hall on Wednesday. And then Carter, Carter's uh, statement came out also on Wednesday. And the very next day, you had the Washington Post saying, look, these guys are, are, are saying this, and your outlier, outlier right now is, is President Donald Trump. All right, right. Um, let's do this. Uh, thank you for that conversation. We've got to get to a break. When we come back, I really do uh, hope you'll all uh, feel okay if we move toward talking a little bit about uh, factors that are weighing into our our voting uh, on primary day next Tuesday. Uh, we'll do that in a moment. This is Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon.
Welcome back to uh, Political Rewind. Dr. Audrey Haynes, Dr. Ellen Abramowitz, Dr. Andre Gillespie are with us today, and so are uh, so is Jim Galloway. Jim and I were just sort of ordinary people. You're not a doctor, are you, Galloway? Uh, I'm not a doctor, and my, my name doesn't start with an A, so I'm not a member of the A team here. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I'm thrilled. We re- we can't bring back the entire A team at one time because of the limitations we have in terms of our audio board when we're operating remotely. But we do have uh, three of you here, and it's really wonderful that we do it. And we should point out you're going to be back next Wednesday uh, to talk about the outcome of the election. All right, let's start with this, Jim. Um We are looking at early voting numbers, uh, and apparently at this point, we have had over 1.1 million people cast ballots in early voting. Uh, The numbers, you may have them in front of you, but I think we had a slightly more. Oh, I do have them. 51% of the ballots cast have been Republican, 46% have been Democratic, Uh, But this tells us that we are going to expect a big turnout on Tuesday uh, if if and and a surge of absentee ballots are going to have to be counted as well. Right. And 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 most importantly is that we don't know who's turning out to vote. All we know is that there's plenty of them. Uh, uh, In in 2016, the last kind of the, 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 the last comparable uh, primary, you you had the sixty five percent of the ballot casts were Republican. Uh, now, granted, that was I think that was that was that was uh, you, uh, Democrats were busy uh, picking a sacrifice, sacrificial lamb to run against uh, Johnny Isaacson, but still, that's a I mean a a a nearly fifteen point drop in in uh, in party identification is a is a huge shift in Georgia and I think it really tells us something uh, about what's going to happen in November uh, I'd, I'd love to hear what 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 our political scientists have to say about that yeah why don't, um, Audrey why don't you jump in first and then we'll go around well it's a, that's a very good question that Jim raises I'm going to be uh, at the polling places on Tuesday collecting data about how people interact with their ballots. So I'll be able to see firsthand who's showing up. But I think there are indications that this election matters and people see it as mattering. Um, And they also think, and I believe, that their vote will matter. Um, And the choices that they make will have an impact on the election. They're paying attention. I mean, we are in the middle of a pandemic. We're in the middle of a change, um, you know, being brought about by massive civil activity. So people are voting and they've been doing it for a while, right? A lot of people have already voted before this last iteration of activity. So it'll be interesting. We may have some data on how votes change dependent on, you know, when these ballots have been uh, cast. There's a difference between the early absentee ballots in their direction and people who turn up on Tuesday. So Actually, we're living in the middle of what could be a very historic moment in Georgia political history. Oh, okay. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, mean I, I from all the indications that we have from the polling uh, in Georgia are that uh, when we get to the general election, that uh, we're going to have a competitive election here in Georgia, both for president and, and for uh, probably both Senate seats. Of course, the jungle primary Kind of hard, hard to know how that how that's going to play out, but the polling that we've seen recently shows that uh, Trump and Biden are running neck and neck in Georgia, uh, and that and that uh, Ossoff uh, or any of the Democrats really, uh, Ossoff, Tomlinson, Riggs, Amico, uh, are uh, are running pretty close to uh, Purdue at this point uh, in the in the Senate contest and. Uh, so I expect to see that continue. I mean, I, my guess is that we're going to have a, a close election here and that um, Georgia is uh, being increasingly viewed as a swing state. It's not one I don't think Democrats are necessarily going to put a lot of money and effort into Georgia uh, because that would just be icing on the cake. Um, but I do think we're going – but on the Senate election, certainly winning Georgia would, would be a big boost to uh, uh, allowing Democrats to – take uh, back control of the Senate. So 
one of the things that's actually interesting when I'm looking at where absentee ballots have been turned in, I think one of the things that's actually really interesting about the interest in it is that it's actually pretty evenly dispersed across congressional districts. So I expected to see this huge, huge spike in the 6th and the 7th district, and it's bigger in the 6th, but I didn't see the huge spike. So I think that that's a, a testament to the interest of this election for voters across the state. It doesn't matter whether or not you're in a really competitive right. uh, congressional district um, or not. Um, you know, one of the things that I wish we had in this state was same-day voter registration, because I think a big question is for the people who have been out in the streets for the last week, you know, are they going to translate their righteous indignation into voting behavior? And there right. are people who have gotten activated in the last week who won't be able to participate in this election because they're not registered to vote um, and because the deadline was a, was a month ago. So, you know, this is this is why some people want to make voting as as as, as uh, you know, proliferate as much as possible because, like, those are the types of people who you want to be able to challenge their frustrations, um, you know, in a way that's actually going to be constructive and formal politics. Right. And, and in fact, Stacey Abrams actually had um, an op-ed, and I think it was in the New York Times, uh, about this very yep. issue and about translating your, you know, the discontent with the status quo in, in, into voting. And it went to a lot of people, you know, voting might not seem like a very effective way of addressing, uh, at least directly, these kinds of concerns with police brutality and systemic racism. But the point she was making is that it is a very necessary step on the way to addressing those problems by uh, making sure that we have leaders who are going to feel uh, accountable um, to, to the people on the, on these issues. So, uh, it's too late now, as you said, for people to register to vote for the primary, but it's certainly not, uh, there's still a long time to go before the general election. And uh, I expect that we'll be seeing uh, in coming fall, I think we'll be seeing uh, another election in which voting by mail is going to be the predominant method of voting and um, where voters are going to be mailed ballots again or mailed applications. Um, and despite the fact that the president doesn't seem to like that, I think we're seeing across the country, even in, in states where you have Republican secretaries of state, as in Georgia, um, that they are moving uh, in, in that direction. You know, Jim, it's interesting. In The 6th and 7th uh, congressional districts are obviously where the most action is in terms of competitive primaries in both the Democratic and the Republican sides. Um it, and I, I'd like to focus for a minute on the Republican candidates in the 6th and 7th, Jim, uh, because the messaging from them is has uh, been pretty uniformly consistent. It is, I'm more of a Trumper than my opponents are. I mean, the Republican candidates are positioning themselves as the strongest supporters of President Trump. I get that in a Republican primary. But what's fascinating, Jim, is to think about what happens if President Trump's approval ratings continue to drop. Uh, what are the Republicans who win those contests in the 6th and 7th? How are they going to try to wean themselves away a little bit from President Trump? Or are they going to be, we don't know for a fact, but are they likely to remain loyal all the way till November? That, that's the problem, isn't it? Uh, because to get out of a primary, you have to be a, 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 a Trump absolutist. And then once you get out of that primary, uh, the general election dynamics take over, and 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 uh, the climate is going to be a lot harsher. Uh, and, and by the way, it's not just it's uh, you have hot Republican races in the in the in the sixth, the seventh, the fourteenth, and the ninth, which are all open. open Absolutely. And, and 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 those are those are those are those are big contests. Uh, and but the only th I think probably the only race in in that we're going to see a, a, that we might see a, a, some finality to is is the sixth district because Karen Handel has been been anointed as kind of the the, the choice of House Republican the House Republican establishment. She's gotten uh, quite a bit of help from them. Uh, I would I would also point to you, Bill. This isn't just about politics. This is. Tuesday is going to cap a, a, just this tremendous logistical effort. I mean, in January, you know, it was all about, you know, uh, putting a $100 million new voting machine system in 159 counties. Well, in March, we just had to throw mm -hmm. that over. And and now it's it's it's, it's about uh, can counties process and count uh, the, these, these million-plus absentee ballots they're getting. And we forget 
the vote count started last Monday, June 1st. Uh, and it will only conclude uh, maybe several days after after uh, January, right. uh, June 9th. Yeah, I, you know, I wonder, Audrey, uh, when we're, you know, we could be waiting days on some of the closest races for the absentee ballots to, to be counted. And I'm assuming that even when we get counts in, if there are contests, there are certainly likely to be where few hundred votes, 500 votes, whatever, separate the two candidates at the top or or create a runoff or not a runoff in some situations that we can expect, given the mechanics of this election, to see challenges to results uh, yeah. across the board. We could. And, you know, democracy is messy. It takes a lot of effort and a lot of work. And what a lot of people in the, um, the state may not realize is that the Secretary of State's office is relatively small that when you look at the Board of Elections staff, those are relatively small, and they often operate on Election Day with a host of volunteers. In fact, um, you know, getting all those mailings out, those were contracted out. Uh, You know, there was, like, some controversy with the sleeves. It's a really tough coordination effort. Um, And counting those ballots and doing so carefully will take time. And we would like to hope that our elected representatives and those engaged in politics will allow that process to take place without introducing controversy that will delegitimize the activities themselves. I mean, I know that the Secretary of State's office is very uh, focused on making sure that it is done right. In fact, uh, the work that we're doing to look at the interaction of people with their ballot is something that they are supporting because they want to make sure that people are checking their ballot and that they do have trust in the system. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Right. Following up on that, I think that it's interesting to see the contrast between what our own secretary of state here, who is a Republican elected official has been doing. And actually this has been happening in a number of States across the country uh, what with uh, trying to move uh, uh, very rapidly, actually, toward an election that is going to be uh, based uh, very heavily on mail-in voting um, and the comments that the president has been making, uh, attacking mail-in voting, attacking absentee voting, uh, inaccurately claiming that states were mailing ballots to everyone when they were not, um, and essentially trying to raise questions in advance about the legitimacy of the election. Um, so uh, it, it, it's really quite startling to see the president of the United States seeming to uh, undermine the legitimacy uh, of the election itself and, and uh, uh, some pushback against that by, uh, by uh, election officials, including Republican election officials. Including Republican officials right here in Georgia. Brad Raffensperger has made it clear that he thinks, you know, it's important that we have this uh, absentee process, especially during the pandemic. Andre, I want to ask you about a WSB TV poll that looked at the uh, Democratic Senate race, Senate race number one, where we will have a a winner declared uh, if there, there could be a runoff, but but. Uh, the fact is, that's the seat that David Perdue now occupies. So there's a you you will vote on Tuesday if you haven't voted already. <laughs> if you're taking a Democratic ballot for that uh, race, and I point that out because some people have have contacted me and asked why they haven't seen names like Raphael Warnock, Kelly Leffler on the ballots that they got in the mail. It's because those won't be decided until November. Okay. All that said, WSB Andra says that John Ossoff, in their polling, which was done by Landmark Communications, uh, has John Ossoff at, I think, uh, at like 43%. uh, uh, Sarah Riggs Amico and Teresa Tomlinson are in the teens. 28% say they are undecided. And I wonder, Andre, what it suggests to me is that, well, I don't know what it suggests to me. Does it suggest that that race has been frozen with 28% still undecided? Is that partly because nobody's focusing on, on electoral politics right now? It's an, it's an interesting situation, Andra. So um, that 28% is disproportionately young. 
Um, and so if we, if you look at the numbers kind of broken down by age, Ossoff is generally the leader across all of the demographics categories that were publicized. Um, and it's a more even race amongst the youngest set of voters. And so that group is the one that's most undecided. So Ossoff probably thinks that because he's a near peer, that that actually probably bodes well for him. I really wanted to see regional numbers and to see the regional breakdown. What I read into that is um, two things. One, I, I read a lot of name recognition into that. And so John Ossoff got a lot of notoriety from um, running for the 6th District in 2017. And I also think, in particular, his endorsement um, by uh, John Lewis was actually probably really helpful, particularly amongst African-American voters. Um, so we'll just have to wait and see what happens on Monday. Yeah, oh, Tuesday, it's, sorry. It's, <laughs> no, no, Tuesday. Yeah. Uh, I, th I think... Uh, a, a couple things here. Number one, yeah, Bill. I think I think people have been distracted by the by the pandemic. I, I think you know Ossoff has had the most money, and so he's been on TV while while you've been locked in your in in your in your uh, in your house. Uh, you know, one year ago when this when this race actually started, I would have said that Teresa Tomlinson probably held the edge. And and one thing you do have to you you, you do have to acknowledge is that she's run this. Very smart, uh, kind of um, under the radar campaign, uh, uh, reaching out to to to, to uh, uh, elected officials outside of outside of Atlanta, outside of Metro Atlanta, and and I'm very interested to see how that actually pays off. Yeah, and she certainly has accumulated a list of endorsements that I, it, uh, Anders right to point out that John Lewis is a big one for Ossoff. But uh, Teresa Tomlinson has accumulated an enormous number of endorsements from uh, high-profile uh, white and African-American Democrats here in Georgia and across the country. Uh, so it'll be interesting, as you say, to see how that plays out. It does look like, and we got to get to a break, uh, but I'll give you one second on this, Audrey, that uh, Asov, at least on the landmark poll, is well under 50 percent. And so we could see a runoff coming out of uh, Tuesday. Yes, and Landmark does some good polling. They're uh, fairly, uh, fairly strongly. Um, they've done a good job in predicting some of these races' uh, outcomes. But you know, I would say the the one thing that um, is potentially uh, negative um, is that you know maybe there's a lot of uncertainty. Ossoff may be leading in this poll, um, and uh, and Andre's absolutely right that a lot of it is name recognition. That's always a big thing. Um, but the, the latest attack on Tomlinson, you know, it could potentially uh, have some negativity uh, for Ossoff among uh, women voters. But it also uh, signals that perhaps he is still worried about her as a challenger. Um, so I noticed that it, during the debate, she got a lot of attention and a lot of questions from uh, the people participating in the debate, including Ossoff. So she's not out of it. And we may see a runoff. So... All right. I've got to get to a break. Uh, uh, right now, we'll come back with more on Political Rewind. We've only got a few minutes left on Political Rewind uh, today, but I wanted to get to a story in the New York Times yesterday. Alan, you talked about uh, George being in play in the fall. The New York Times ran a piece the headline was Trump campaign looks at electoral map and doesn't like what it sees. And what they're seeing is that swing state or states that they won and hoped would be uh, in their column in November, Ohio, Arizona, I could we could name a number of them, look like they could be up for grabs. And so, Alan, the New York Times reports, uh, Georgia is looking more and more like a state the Trump people are going to really want to focus on, especially when you got two important U.S. Senate seats here. Alan? Right. I mean, there's no question that um, Georgia is looking like a uh, uh, a potential swing state in 2020. Um, you know, every poll I've seen here in the recent weeks has shown uh, that the race is you know, very, within a couple of points, one way or the other. So, I mean, some question I think is how much money and effort the Democrats are going to put into the presidential race in Georgia. Um, it's not a state that they need to win. Um, but at the same time, given that there are two Senate races here, uh, maybe we'll see them putting some, some effort and resources into Georgia. I think as the presidential race goes in Georgia, so will the Senate races. 
Um, I, I think it's very unlikely that you're going to see a split outcome between those two. And these Senate elections are becoming increasingly nationalized. And I, I think that um, you're going to see um, that there's going to be very little, very little difference in, in the results. Uh, although with, it's poss- possible the, um, you know, because of, because of the uh, sort of jungle primary that that, that one may, may uh, almost certainly will go to a runoff. Uh, given the number of candidates. So that one won't be decided until January. So it was funny when we were preparing for this, I was thinking about what Alan um, would say, and I'm not calling this a wave election, but if Trump is in trouble and if he's in that much trouble, then it wouldn't be unusual if Georgia was riding the wave along with other states as well. And so that was what I took sure. from from that article. Uh, yeah, yeah, Bill. It, look, it, you can. I, I can see the logic of of injecting more cash here in, to to save those two Senate seats and and preserve control, Republican <clears throat> control of the Senate. But if you are if if you are fighting for Donald Trump to win Georgia, you've got far bigger problems uh, elsewhere. Uh, uh, you, you, that means that means you have given up on places like Ohio, on Wisconsin, on Michigan. So, so I, I mean, it, it's it's if 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 uh, you're right, if it's if it's even close for Donald Trump in Georgia, uh, that could spell trouble for him. And and let me add, too, Audrey? I think I think that um, some of our um, very astute strategic political actors, like a David Perdue himself, who's sitting on a nine million dollar war chest. If you look at his Twitter feed, it has been focused on the pandemic. It's been focused on policy. Just since the month of May, I have not seen a, oh, that Trump, he's doing great. I got to defend him. I mm-hmm. love that guy. So I think they're waiting and watching to see what the political dynamics are going to be heading into this. And Trump always, you know, trips on his own feet. Strong man went and hid in the bunker. Mr. Mm-hmm. Economy is, you know, the only good thing that may happen <laughs> is if we rebound, he's going to utilize that. And in terms of blame, he's pointing a finger at Antifa because he realizes that independent voters and even that slim margin of, of black voters, he needs them desperately in a very competitive election. All right. Just to be sure that we are somewhat balanced here, based on what you just said, Audrey, uh, there are people who would say that there was nothing wrong. Unfortunately, the president wouldn't acknowledge it with the president being whisked off uh, to a secure location in the White House that, in fact, what he should have done was embrace that. Uh, uh, He didn't. Uh, but uh, uh, to, I, I just want to make sure we know there are people out there who would argue differently. Oh, uh, Andre, you got a couple seconds here to make a point. I don't care about going to the bunker, but I do care about pushing protesters out of the way so you could have a really weird photo yeah. op with a Bible in an offensive right. way. Ab- yeah. Absolutely. 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 All right. Absolutely. All right. Galloway, uh, last uh, uh, comments on this show. Uh, Brian Kemp continues to say uh, he wants the Republican convention somewhere in Georgia. It's probably not mm-hmm. going to be Atlanta if they're even looking at Georgia because Keisha Lance Bottoms uh, would put up obstacles to that. Uh, but it's interesting that they're fighting to see William Pate at the Atlanta Convention and Visitors Bureau said if the president wants it here, we'll bring it here. We're not going to get yeah, the convention. Yeah, yeah. Here, it, lo- it looks like it, it looks like the contractual obligations uh, between the RNC and Charlotte are going to hold in large part. You might have a, a an acceptance speech from Donald Trump at a location, and yeah, I suppose uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms could uh, could could throw up some roadblocks. But keep in mind that the Georgia World Congress Center is under state control. Ah. All right, Jim Galloway, you got the last word in today's show. Dr. Audrey Haynes, Dr. Andre Gillespie, Dr. Alan Abramowitz, and you, my friend, Mr. Galloway, thank you so much for being here. I hope you all have a restful weekend. Please take care and stay healthy. See you on Monday.